name is Stephen Sindoni. Thank you for tuning into the broadcast of The Great Fire of New York, 1776 Revealed. To better understand the events surrounding the Great Fire of New York in 1776, I will set up the timeline. The Continental Congress adopts the Olive Branch Petition, which expresses hope for reconciliation with Britain, appealing directly to the King for help in achieving this. In August, King George III refuses to even look at the petition. Instead, he issues a proclamation declaring the Americans to be in a state of open rebellion. On July 6, 1775, the Continental Congress issues a declaration on the causes and necessity of taking up arms, detailing the colonists' reasons for fighting the British, and states the Americans are resolved to die free rather than live as slaves. On December 23, 1775, King George III issues a royal proclamation closing the American colonies to all commerce and trade to take effect on March of 1776. On January 9, 1776, Thomas Paine's Common Sense is published in Philadelphia. The 50-page pamphlet is highly critical of King George III. The book attacks allegiance to monarchy in principle while pronouncing strong arguments for American independence. It becomes an instant bestseller in America. We have it in our power to begin the world anew. America shall make a stand, not for herself alone, but for the world, Payne states. March 4th to March 17th, 1776, American forces captured Dorchester Heights, which overlooks Boston Harbor. Captured British artillery from Fort Ticonderoga is placed on the heights to enforce the siege against the British in Boston. The British evacuate Boston and set sail for Halifax. George Washington then rushes to New York to set up defenses, anticipating the British plan to invade New York City. April 6, 1776, the Continental Congress declares colonial shipping ports open to all traffic except the British. The Continental Congress has already authorized pirateer raids on British ships and also advised disarming all Americans loyal to England. On April 12, 1776, the North Carolina Assembly is the first to empower its delegates in the Continental Congress to vote for independence from Britain. On May 2, 1776, the American revolutionaries get the much-needed foreign support that they had hoped for. King Louis XVI of France commits a million dollars in arms and munitions. Spain then also promises support. Then on May 10, 1776, the Continental Congress authorizes each of the 13 colonies to form local provincial governments. On June 28, 1776, in South Carolina, American forces at Fort Moultrie successfully defend Charleston against a British naval attack and inflict heavy damage on the fleet. In June and July of 1776, a massive British war fleet arrives in New York Harbor consisting of 30 battleships with 1,200 cannons, 30,000 soldiers, 10,000 sailors, and 300 supply ships under the command of General William Howe and his brother Admiral Lord Richard Howe. Also in the same period between June to July of 1776, on June 7th, Richard Henry Lee, a Virginia delegate to the Continental Congress, presents a formal resolution calling for America to declare its independence from Britain. On July 4th, 
1776, the United States Declaration of Independence is signed in Philadelphia. Then on July 12, 1776, at the request of the British, General George Washington meets with Howe's representatives in New York and listens to vague offers of clemency for the American rebels. Washington politely declines and then leaves. On August 27 to 29, General Howe leads 15,000 soldiers against Washington's army in the Battle of Long Island. General George Washington is outnumbered two to one, suffering a severe defeat as his army is outflanked and scatters. The Americans retreat to Brooklyn Heights, facing possible capture by the British or even total surrender. But at night, the Americans cross the East River in small boats and escape to Manhattan, then evacuate New York City and retreat up through Manhattan Island to Harlem Heights. Washington now changes tactics, avoiding large-scale battles with the British by a series of retreats. Then on September 11, 1776, a peace conference is held on Staten Island with British Admiral Lord Richard Howe meeting American representatives, including John Adams and Benjamin Franklin. The peace conference fails as Howe demands the colonists to revoke the Declaration of Independence. Then on September 16, 1776, after evacuating New York City, Washington repulses a British attack during the Battle of Harlem Heights in Upper Manhattan. Several days later, on September 21, 1776, at a little past midnight, a fire broke out in a little brothel in a wooden building on the wharf called the Fighting Cox Tavern on Whitehall Street. Strong winds quickly spread the flames among tightly packed homes and businesses. Residents poured into the streets clutching what possessions they could and found refuge only on the grassy town commons. The fire raged into the daylight hours and eventually consumed 500 buildings, about one-third of the city. British naval personnel fought the fire with little success. Shortly afterwards, the British interrogated more than 200 suspects, but none of them were convicted and all were released. On the following day, on September 22, 1776, Nathan Hale was arrested in Queens for spying. Unsubstantiated rumors have since attempted to link Hale to the fires, though there is nothing indicated he was arrested for anything other than espionage. After he was caught spying, Nathan Hale was executed without a trial. In his last words, he had this to say, I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. General Howard's report made the charge that the accident was the work of Whig conspirators. By 1835, New York City was the premier American city. Its financial prowess surpassed that of Philadelphia and Boston. The opening of the Erie Canal 10 years earlier connected New York to raw materials and international market hubs. Over half of the country's exports left through New York Harbor. More than a third of American imports arrived here. Railroad terminals were rapidly built within the city to facilitate commerce. 
Insurance companies, investment firms, real estate companies, and others made New York City their home. The city's population had swelled by an additional 140,000 in the past decade. But the fire department's growth in the 1820s and 1830s had not kept pace with the growth of the city. The fire department had only added 300 more firemen. The firemen numbered 1,500 with 55 engines, six ladder companies, and five hose carts, which could not protect the growing number of New Yorkers. The city's residents, as well as firefighters, still had to rely on neighborhood wells, 40 strategically placed fire cisterns, and an inadequate reservoir located at 13th Street and the Bowery. A cholera outbreak in 1832 and 1834 hastened the city's plans for building the Croton Reservoir, which would have brought clean water from upstate Westchester County into the city. Throughout the summer and fall of 1835, the fire department had been kept quite busy fighting numerous fires. In fact, on December 14th, the entire fire department, 1,500 strong, had spent the freezing, miserable evening fighting two large fires which destroyed 13 buildings and two shops. The city's fire cisterns were nearly empty and its firefighting force exhausted when disaster struck. On December 16, 1835, the fire began in the evening on a five-story warehouse at 25 Merchant Street, now called Beaver Street, at the intersection with Pearl Street between Hanover Square and Manhattan. The snow-covered city was experiencing gale-force winds blowing from the northwest towards the East River. With temperatures as low as minus 17 degrees Fahrenheit and the East River frozen solid. Firefighters had to cut holes in the ice to get water. Water then froze in the hoses and pumps. Firefighters who were called in from Philadelphia could see signs of fire 90 miles away. At 2 a.m., the United States Marines with gunpowder from the Brooklyn Navy Yard blew up buildings in the fire's path, destroying 700 buildings. The losses were estimated at $20 million, which in today's value would be in the hundreds of millions. Miraculously, only two people were killed. Interestingly enough, investigators did not assess blame and reported that the cause of the fire was a burst gas pipe that was ignited by a coal stove. In my opinion, a very convenient explanation. Within one year's time, all the wooden buildings were replaced by large stone and brick ones that were less prone to widespread major fires. The fires also prompt the construction of a new municipal water supply, now known as the Old Croton Aqueduct, and a reform and expansion of the fire service. This was the last great fire of New York. Rumor has it that the first great fire of September 21, 1776 of New York was set by Nathan Hale, who was later hung for espionage by the British. There are others that believe that the second fire was orchestrated by the U.S. government in 1835. After researching this story, the question that enters my mind is, why would the U.S. Marines be called in to blow up 700 buildings? It does make one wonder. In today's program, I will present compelling evidence that man has been in North America for millions of years. 
On June 18, 1866, Dr. William James of Murphy's, California, sent a letter to the State Geological Survey of California regarding a recently discovered fossil human skull. Uh, Mr. Madison had personally found this skull in his mining shaft at Ball Hill in Angels Camp, California, 130 feet below the surface, beneath the cap of lava. The skull had been embedded in a spherous, gold-bearing, tetrary gravels adjacent to a petrified log. This replaced the time of the skull before the commencement of the Pleistocene era and long before the accepted time of man's arrival on the earth, according to evolutionary geology. Mr. Madison had first thought it was the root of a petrified log. Later, after some close examination and probing, he was surprised it was a human skull. Mr. Gabb, a California state paleontologist, asked that the skull be delivered to the State Geological Survey in San Francisco. Dr. Jones complied and the skull was received by the survey on June 29, 1866. A few days later, the prestigious head of the California Geological Survey, J.D. Whitney, who had been out of town at the time of notification, returned to San Francisco and first examined the skull. Mr. Madison, the discoverer of the fossil skull, later related to Whitney how the skull had been found. Madison said he personally dug the skull from gold-bearing gravels in his Bald Hill mine shaft in February of 1866. He took it to John Scribner, a store owner and agent for Wells Fargo in Angel's Camp, where Scribner received the skull. It was stony material that he, Scribner, did not recognize what it was. Mr. Scribner's clerk cleaned off the portion of the encrusted material and discovered that the article in question was a human skull. The site of the fossil was visited several times by Whitney, the state geologist, and three assistants of Whitney's, as well as several of Whitney's personal friends not connected with the geological survey. Whitney's conclusion in his 1880s book, There is a large body of evidence, the strength of which it is impossible to deny, which seems to prove that man existed in California previous to the cessation of volcanic activity in the Sierra Madre to the epoch of the greatest extension of the glaciers in that region and to the erosion of the present river canyons and valleys at a time when the animals and vegetable creation differed entirely from what they are now and when the topographical features of the state were extremely unlike those exhibited by the present surface. Another individual who personally examined the Calavera skull soon after it was discovered was William H. Dahl on January 10, 1899. He reported the following to the Academy of Natural Sciences of Philadelphia. The evidence has generally been regarded among scientific men as convincing and sufficient, and that no sufficient reason had been adduced for doubting the genuine character of the skull and its original location below the lava. In 1899, Vice President Thomas Wilson of the American Association for the Advancement of Science also defended the skull's genuineness. In this address before the American Association for the Advancement of Science, Wilson quoted from an earlier address at the same meeting by Putnam, who said that man was on the American continent in quaternary times and possibly still earlier seems to be as certain as that he was in the old world during that same period. In addition to these men, other noted men such as L.G. Yates, E.T. Newton, President of the Geologist Association, and W.O. Ayers were all in agreement with Whitney that the Calaveras skull was not a hoax. If these findings are true, then the Bering Strait theory is a lie, and the 12,000-year-old modern history timeline is also incorrect, which would also shatter 
Darwinism, and all religious practices and beliefs. In closing, I would like to end by saying, the mind is like a parachute. It only works when it is open.